Hello and welcome to Candid, where we never settle for less than the truth. I'm your host, Jonathan Youssef. Each week, we'll tackle tough issues, answer your hard questions, and take a candid look at the Christian faith. Before we dive into today's episode, I want to thank one of our listeners, Wynand Pfeiffer from Australia. Wynand, who left us a review, he wrote, Thank you for your podcast. I am grateful that Yahweh is spreading the gospel and truth through your ministry. Wynand, our Candid team is always encouraged when we hear from our listeners. It's been a wonderful reminder how the Lord is using this podcast. Would you mind leaving us a review today? By leaving a review and rating, it helps others to find us, and it is a tremendous help. Using your favorite podcast platform, go to our show and leave a rating along with a review, and perhaps next week we will mention you on the show. Now on to our episode. Speak the truth in love. That's the great challenge, Jonathan, that we face. That's the challenge your generation faces. How will I be able to tell people the truth in love? And it's in the best interest of the person you're dealing with to remind yourself constantly that they're made in the image of God. That the gospel is true and that you need to find a way to speak to them that remains, I'm going to use the word, faithful to the revelation of God in Christ. I was on Gino's radio program, Crosswalk, a few weeks ago. When I heard his story, I knew I had to share it with you. Gino Geraci lives a radically transformed life in Christ, and you don't want to miss a minute of his testimony. Gino Geraci is a pastor emeritus, a seasoned police chaplain, and a former FBI chaplain. He's ministered to first responders, victims, and families facing tragedy at Ground Zero on 9-11 and after the shootings at Columbine High School and the Aurora Theater in Colorado. He's also the host of the popular radio talk show Crosswalk on KRKS Radio out of Denver, Colorado. In this conversation, Gino reveals how one invitation changed his life and how God has led him to each unique assignment since. This episode will leave you in awe of the Lord and how he guides and directs our paths uniquely. Now, on to our conversation. Well, it is uh, my honor and privilege to have Gino Geraci on Candid Conversations. Gino, thank you for joining us. It's my privilege, Jonathan. Well, and Gino, you're familiar to the radio world, as uh, a number of my guests have been, and you've actually had me on your program. And I will yes. say, when uh, <laughs> when the Leading the Way team came to me and said, uh, there's a radio program out of Denver that wants to have you on, and I thought, my goodness, Why? I have nothing interesting to say, Uh, but I will say you are a consummate professional and you did a fantastic job of, of, uh, I've done live radio, I think one or two times before, Mm -hmm. Uh, but you're a pro and you kept me on my toes, but at the same time you you put me at ease. And so I may not be as, uh, as gracious as you were. No problem. (laughs) Well, Gino, uh, for maybe those outside of the Denver area who uh, aren't familiar with you, tell us a little bit about family, upbringing. We obviously have this thing in common in terms of uh, both coming from uh, immigrant families. So so walk us through a little bit of that, a little bit of your family history and background. Well, my grandfather, father, uh, came to the United States of America in 1948 
my father and um, his father were raised in fascist Italy. My father was born in 1936, so he was a very, very young man when the war broke out. And when the Americans invaded Sicily, my father actually got injured. Um, my grandfather and father then came to the United States via New York and then to New Orleans. And then they later sent for my grandmother and the rest of his siblings. And so my father, coming to America at about the age of 11 or 12, tried to go into the public school system, but he didn't do well at all and uh, started running the streets. He became involved in eventually uh, organized crime. And, you know, you talk about people growing up gaudy. My father had some real difficulties and my parents married very, very young. My mother conceived me when she was 15 years old, had me when she was 16. Um, the marriage only survived about five years. My mother and father divorced and I went with my mother from September to June and then with my father from June to the end of August. And so that's the kind of world that I grew up in. Wow. Well, and I think people hear Sicilian and they think, well, that was a, a natural proclivity that he was going to end up in that sort of uh, world with yeah. I mean, any sort of ties to organized crime or yeah, anything. He, I mean, he uh, as a very young man, was a driver for a person whose name that's going to be known to older people in your audience, Louis Prima. Louis Prima was very famous. He, If you ever saw Disney's Jungle Book, there was an orangutan in the Jungle Book called King Louis. And you go, I'm the king of the jungle, swing the jungle VIP. That's the guy that my dad drove for. And as he grew up and as he became older, he became involved in the New Orleans nightclub scene and, and gambling and illegal gambling. He was involved in a number of different things that that were very, very shady. And he made a conscientious effort to shield me from that life. And so I grew up with very few boundaries. And because I grew up with very few boundaries, there weren't many, many things that I wouldn't do. You know, Jonathan, in high school, I jokingly say, <laughs> I was voted most likely to go to hell. Wow. And if you think that's bad, my brother was voted most likely to marry outside of his own species. So we're talking about a troubled family. We're talking about a okay. troubled family. Yeah, yeah. And uh, a group of Christians at my high school campus began to pray for me. They literally got together and they said, who is the person least likely to go to heaven? Jonathan, doesn't least likely to go to heaven sound a lot like most likely to go to hell? <laughs> and so it's just with a positive spin. <laughs> yeah. So they began to pray for me and um, they invited me to a Christian concert at Calvary Chapel, Costa Mesa. This is the height of the Jesus movement in March of right. 1973. Right. And um, I didn't really want to go. I wasn't a person who was particularly fond of Christians or Christianity. So I was one of those people. I wasn't searching. I wasn't looking. I was running. I had no intention of becoming a Christian. They took me mm. to a Christian concert. I heard the gospel, Jonathan. Uh, the person who was preaching that night was a very young preacher. He was the youth pastor of Calvary Chapel, Costa Mesa, named Tom Stipe. He was preaching from John chapter 11. You know the famous story of Lazarus, mm. how he had died. And uh, Jesus was at the grave site of Lazarus with his two sisters. 
And you'll remember there was a very well-known passage in the scripture where the Lord says, remove the stone. And his sister said, but Lord, he stinketh in the old King James. He's corrupt. His body is starting to decompose. It's really interesting that single phrase, he stinketh. The Holy Spirit took that phrase, spoke to my heart and said, you stinketh, you stinketh. In other words, Jonathan, I literally smelled decomposition. I could sense the rottenness inside of my heart, the painful wickedness and depravity that I was a sinner in need of a savior. And it was really interesting. You know the story how Jesus says, Lazarus, come forth. And Lazarus comes forth. You know the very famous phrase, I'm the resurrection and the life. He that believeth in me, even if he were dead. And for a split moment, I said to myself, if this Jesus can bring a rotting, decomposing body back to life, I wonder if he could save somebody like me. The pastor at that moment said, you're probably wondering if Jesus can save somebody like you. (laughs) Get out of my head, preacher. Right. And uh, he extended the invitation. Now, again, this is the height of the Jesus movement when literally hundreds of people are receiving Christ as their Savior. And in a very real sense, there was only three people who went forward that night. And I remember seeing the look of disappointment on the preacher's face. From his perspective, the evening was a bust. It was Mm. a bust. You know, if only three people got saved, imagine thousands of people show up. You, you've been in circumstances where you, you, you spend so much time, so much effort, so much money, and it doesn't seem yeah. to yield the fruit. And I remember mm. talking with them later saying, you know, God's interested in fruit that remains. And by the way, the week after I got saved, I introduced my best friend to the Lord Jesus Christ. His name was Skip Heitzig. He later would go on and become the pastor of the fastest growing church in America. I tell people that if Christianity were Amway, I would be a diamond dealer. <laughs> You're at the top of the pyramid. So wow. again, God used that remarkable time. Um, and, and again, I, I think about the reality that when Andrew and John began to follow Jesus in, in John chapter one and two, It says that Andrew first found his brother, Peter. You'll remember, Jonathan, there's no recorded sermon of Andrew in the Bible. He didn't write anything to contribute to the New Testament. Yeah, he leads people. Yeah, he first brought his brother. Andrew was willing to be number two in order for Jesus to be number one. That's something your your dad would say. He was Mm. willing to be number two in order for Jesus to be number one. And so... You know, I, I, I reflect back, Jonathan, that maybe the most important conversation I've ever had with anyone was as a brand new believer, simply sharing my experience of coming to Christ with my best friend, who would later, again, become one of the most important Bible teachers in America. And so I'm just thinking about that for the, the people who are listening right now who might think, you know, I'm not doing anything spectacular for Jesus But guess what? Just simply sharing your faith with the person closest to you might wind up changing the world. From small things, yeah, I think of, uh, you know, as Jesus talks about the kingdom is like, uh, it spreads like leaven. Mm -hmm. It's almost invisible, uh, and it looks like a mustard seed, right? Mm -hmm. Small, imperceptible things, but yet when they grow and expand and, and God uses them, you don't realize 
the massive trajectory that it's on, but for us, it can look so small. Okay. So Gino, you know, you've come to faith, you're, you're even evangelizing right off the bat, (laughs) which uh, is amazing. Uh, Tell us a little bit about how you, I mean, was it a particular calling that you felt to go into the, the preaching and teaching ministry? Yeah, at the, at the beginning, I sensed that God wanted me to be doing that. I mean, literally two weeks after I got saved, and as a high school student, I was elected student body president of my high school. And, and most uh, likely to go to hell, huh? Yeah, but, but you know what? <laughs> I, what was really interesting is I uh, changed. There was something mm. remarkable. There was a fundamental change that took place inside of my, my heart. And I, I started a Bible study at, at, the, wow. at the school. And again, I didn't know hardly anything. All I knew is that Jesus saved me. And when I got saved, you know, the person who prayed with me said, you should read the Gospel of John. And I read the Gospel of John. And it was so exciting to me. And then I started reading the rest of the New Testament. I was a junior in high school. And then I was the student body president the, the next year as a senior in high school. Um, I started thinking seriously, well, you know, what is my life going to be like? What am I going to do? Where am I going to go? And I thought for sure that I was going to go to college, uh, go to law school, become an attorney and live happily ever after. But I was miserable because that's yeah. not what God was calling me to do. He was calling mm-hmm. me into the ministry. And what was interesting, I wound up going to Azusa Pacific very briefly and then left to go to the University of San Francisco to go to law school. And what's interesting is I took human relations and organizational development, which is the old industrial psychology. It's people in the workplace. And I discovered something later on in my ministry that most churches fail, not because they have differences of belief, but because people don't get along with each other. And so Mm. God was preparing me for a lifetime of ministry. And I had a deep love and already a commitment to the word of God And Calvary Chapel did things a little bit differently. We did the work of the ministry. And then many of us later went back to school and got advanced degrees and, you know, biblical studies or ministry or or that kind of thing. So as a young man, after I graduated, I became a church planter with Skip Heitzig. He went to um, Albuquerque, New Mexico. And in the 1980s, our church was one of the fastest growing churches in America. And then I planted a church in Santa Fe. Um, it became clear that God had called me to be a church planter. You know, the Bible says one person plants, another person waters. God gives the increase. So I made my way to Denver, Colorado, to a little suburb called Littleton, Colorado, and planted a church there. And unbeknownst to me, just a few blocks from where I planted the church was a high school that would later become very famous called Columbine High School. Mm. And mm-hmm. so it was at Columbine that I was a first responder and new things would begin to unfold in the ministry and opportunities. We're going to come back to the first responder opportunities, but but you've also served through uh, chaplaincy programs sure. with the FBI, the Chino Police, Denver Police, uh, and I think you're currently the still County serving Sheriff's Department, Arapahoe yeah. County. Yeah. So... I think a lot of Christians maybe don't have a full picture of what chaplaincy looks like. Right. Um, it, it's very much the first responder in a, in a, in the sort of, uh, 
uh, pastoral sense, I would I would suggest. So so maybe kind of like paint us a little bit of a picture of what of what that chaplaincy looks like, uh, you know, with those different organizations. Yeah, for me, a chaplaincy began in Southern California after I graduated from school, and I took a job as in social services in San Bernardino County. And while I was working with the, at the Department of Social Services, I developed a longing for a deep love for police officers. You know, Jonathan, just like, you know, you went overseas or you went to Australia, you know, God lays on, on your heart this vast, unreached people group. And for me, the vast, unreached people group was law enforcement. So as a very young man, I went to Rio Hondo Police Academy, which is the Los Angeles uh, Police Academy. And I went through their school and I graduated And it was that that opened the door as a reserve police officer to serve as the chaplain for the Chino Police Department. And I began to work with and and serve and support and minister and pray with police officers and their families. And that began a sort of lifelong ministry of deep involvement with the law enforcement community. And... um, and over the years, I've had the great privilege of serving so many um, law enforcement agencies, and particularly in Colorado. Even recently at Calvary South Denver, our church became a sort of the graduation hub for the Colorado Academy, where uh, literally over the last five to seven years, almost every sworn police officer in the state of Colorado took their oath of office in our church. So, you know, again, wow. you, you just talk about one person loving a person, one person at a time, and then a family at a time. And then the ministry continues to grow. And I've never lost that love for concern for police. And Jonathan, you probably understand right at this very moment, this is one of the most difficult times in all of American history to be a police officer. Yeah. And I was going to just ask about that. I mean, you as a person who, who has great respect, understanding for that profession, how has all the the news and information and, and and reports and everything's you know how does that weigh on you? You know it weighs heavily on me because I understand Jonathan just like the ministry. I think that it's a very special calling by the Lord Jesus Christ for our brothers and sisters who find themselves in the vocation of of law enforcement. You know the Bible makes it abundantly clear that the government exists to promote righteousness and to prevent wickedness, and that God has ordained government for that very task. So you can imagine in a cultural collapse where police aren't appreciated, um, it becomes very, very difficult. But again, there is that lawless element, and so yeah, for me, as I look at the families and members of that I've worked with over the years and. So many people are leaving the profession. Again, you know, I, I feel a renewed calling to, to minister to men and women who are police officers. Well, and as it's become more headline news over the last uh, two, three years, and then right. really lately, what sort of transition have you seen in, in the issues that have been brought to you as a chaplain, as a person who's serving the police community Well, many of the transitions, especially along the way of being a first responder, many officers are traumatized. You know, we we tend to think, well, you know, that events wouldn't traumatize officers. That's not true. They're human. Yeah, these are human beings. 
And, and when you see the cumulative brokenness that happens in the world in which we live, it, it becomes even more important to bring the element of hope. Jonathan, we don't have to convince our family and friends that we live in a broken world. What we have to do is convince them that Jesus is the solution to the brokenness. Just thinking about first responders, police officers, again, you're right. They're dealing with uh, trauma, the abundance of sin that exists within the world. How do you minister, you know, even give us sort of a hypothetical example where someone comes in and just says, I have lost all hope. I don't know what to do. What do I do here? How, How do you sort of tailor that response to each one? Well, you know what? Oddly enough, the way that I put it is the way the scripture puts it. In a very real sense, there's only two kinds of people in the world, Italian people and people who wish they were. No, those aren't the two kinds. There's two kinds of people in the world, those who have hope and those who need hope. And in Romans chapter 15, you know the passage of Scripture. It says, Now may the God of all hope fill you with all joy and peace and believing that you might abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. According to the Bible, God is a God of hope, and the Scriptures are the source of hope. So one of the things that I try to help people understand is, if you need hope, there's a place where you can go to get hope. And again, As Christians, we have the resources of the Word of God and the promises of God. But even the unbeliever has the resource of knowing that if they'll confess their sin and repent of their sin, that they can receive Christ as their Savior. So early on in my ministry, I think of the illustration of a man who was preaching, and he thought he was a really good preacher. But people started listening to him less and less. And he said that he was was in a field in Indiana, And a man was plowing by hand, and there was a group of chickens who were following him. And he said the thought just sort of welled up in his mind that the chickens will always follow the man who's plowing up the worms. And you need to be able to give hope in every single situation. There's a hopeful solution to the problem of sin, to the difficulties that it weighs on a person's marriage or their occupation or whoever they happen to be. So I've always been that that chaplain where I'm trying to connect people who are disconnected to hope. The biblical concept of hope is is not uh, like, I hope I win the lottery or I hope I don't right. get cancer. I mean, it is assurance, right? There's, there's a confidence that comes with the biblical concept of hope. And I'm sure you have to sort of undo wrong definitions of hope when you're giving them that uh, that message of biblical hope. Right, right. Yeah, just like you pointed out, it isn't like a child who says, I hope I get a bike for Christmas, or I, I hope I do th- this or that. The hope is an expectation in the Bible. It's a confident expectation. And the confident expectation is rooted and grounded in the word of God and the promises of God, which are in fact rooted and grounded in the character of God. And so that's been my experience that, that people um, need hope. And so there, you know, again, in the most winsome way as a chaplain, what you try to do is through the ministry of presence, earn 
the opportunity to speak to people in the most difficult situation. And you can imagine as a police officer and many police officers or first responders or FBI that they find people in the worst time in their life. Imagine, Jonathan, that people make a decision about you, not based on the best thing that you've ever done, but the worst thing that you've ever done. That's what where police find people often on the worst day of their life. And so, again, it's a unique calling to be a law enforcement officer, a police officer, a special agent with the Bureau. Yeah. Well, okay, so you've also served as a first responder for the Columbine shooting for right. 9-11. For 9-11. for the 2012 Aurora, Colorado movie shooting theater in the movie shooting. theater. Right. How did you get into these positions? Yeah, can you imagine your life where you go, if it's really bad, then you're going to be there. Well, with the Columbine shooting, it was literally, it seemed almost fortuitous, if you will. We planted our church just a few blocks from Columbine High School. But for years, remember, I had been working with the law enforcement agencies. I was a chaplain for the Arapahoe County Sheriff's Department. And so when the tragedy unfolded, I was one of the people who was called with the law enforcement to the school. And then subsequently, I had the great privilege of working with many of the families um, and officers who were involved with the shooting. And so that sort of set the stage, if you will. But remember, it began with just a prayer. It began with a prayer, Lord, who do you want me to love and who do you want me to care about? The Lord placed early on in my heart a love for police officers. I had the opportunity then to go to a police academy and then become a chaplain and then work with police officers. And it was that sort of background that gave me the opportunity when the Columbine event happened. And then after Columbine, um, Franklin Graham, who's friends with your dad, uh, Franklin Graham and Samaritan's Purse, and I know that you, your, your dad and he have a, a, a long background together as, as well as I do. Franklin invited me to go with him to New York after ground zero. And so with the American Red Cross and Franklin Graham, we began ministering to people during the horrible tragedy of 9-11. Well, it was at 9-11 that I first got introduced to FEMA, the Federal Emergency Management people, and, and the FBI. And I noticed that the FBI took the lead. And I thought and prayed and I said to myself, you know, if I ever get the opportunity I'm going to pray that God perhaps will open the door for me to work with the FBI. Well, in 2005, that door opened where the FBI approached me to become one of their chaplains. And mm -hmm. so I went through the process of becoming a chaplain for the FBI, including uh, some training and even going to Quantico and, and then working with the FBI from 2005 to 2019. But, and remember, all the while, I'm the pastor of a fairly large church and doing a daily radio program on the Salem Network. You are a busy man, and I don't think that's ever probably going to stop, um, just based on our, our two interactions with each other. Uh, those are really traumatic events. They are, obviously, in the national spotlight. You know, how... how one, I mean, were there things that you yourself had to come to terms with, or did you feel like you had all the training you needed, 
you could kind of just march in and, and do what you needed to do? Or was there sort of a, a kind of catch your breath moment with tragedies on such a large level? Well, you know what? That's a great question because, again, you know, having the education and training really was helpful. But it's absurd to think that education and training are going to shield you from trauma. It really doesn't work that way. Um, after Columbine, I literally have to drive down the street past Columbine High School every single day. And with that comes the triggering moment where you're reliving the events of that trauma. And so, you know, whether you're talking about 9-11 or you're talking about the Aurora movie theater shooting, trauma is also cumulative, Jonathan. It isn't just a single death or a single right. car accident or you come right. up upon a suicide. The trauma seems to increase in direct proportion to the amount of mass casualties that are involved. That training helped me, but it didn't make the trauma itself go away. And so one, it, it made me a little bit more self-aware and sensitive to how trauma works in individuals who have been exposed to uh, ongoing, incessant trauma. But again, with grace and mercy and humility and sensitivity and compassion, walking forward, always bringing the resources together for people who need it. Um, I remember shortly after Columbine, I got invited to speak. And Jonathan, you can imagine... I speak for a living. That's what I do. And um, I had an event that happened, and it was so upsetting to me because I'm getting ready to speak, and I'm overcome, Jonathan, with emotion. I'm overcome with emotion. I'm starting to weep, and I can hardly choke back the emotion. And it was frustrating because, number one, I didn't want to be overcome emotionally in public. And number two, because I really had something that I wanted to say. And so I begged the audience, could you please forgive me for a moment? Just let me gather my emotion and I'm going to proceed with my talk. And that's exactly what I did. And there was a lady there. Her six-year-old daughter had just died of brain cancer. She told me the horrible story of her daughter diagnosed with brain cancer, going to the hospitals. Um, her daughter dies. And her husband, at a time when he should be there, literally can't take the mental and emotional strain, and he leaves her. So not only does she lose her daughter, but now she's lost her husband. And she's telling me this story. Jonathan, what should I say to her? What could I possibly say to her to give her comfort? And I prayed. I said, Lord, will you please help me? Will you please help me have something to say to this woman who's in so much pain and so much grief. And as I was praying, I believe the Lord laid something on my heart. I said to her, let's do a, a thought experiment. I want you to pretend that you could go back in time. You never meet your husband. You never have your daughter. You never have to go to the hospital. You never have to bury your, 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 your loved one. It never happened. If you could make it all go away, would you? What do you suppose she said? No. She said, 
No, I would do it all over again. Yeah. I would do it mm-hmm. all over again. And I asked her why. And she said, if I could just have my daughter one more time in my lap, I could yeah. put my arms around her and hear her say, I love you, mom. I would yeah. do it all over again. And you could see it was like a weight lifted off of her. Light began to shine. She began to smile because she began to realize, no, even in all of this pain and grief, her daughter's life mattered. Her love mattered. Their yeah. lives mattered. And, and that, it was real. It, meant, it was real and it meant something. And yeah. so sometimes part of the challenge that we have is to put things in a perspective where people go, yes, these horrible and terrible things have happened but I'm so grateful to God for the privileges that I have of being this person's mother and that her life really mattered. So again, it it isn't knowing everything about everything, but what it is, it's a willingness to love people and care about them and then take God's word and connect it to the situation. Yeah. Perspective. Uh, I think certainly people who have gone through great tragedy and, 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 and trauma perspective helps a great deal. And I, and I, I think you've put it so well that the connecting what God has said to his people, to someone who's going through great difficulty, it's a difficult thing to do. Right. You can't just do it overnight, but when it does click and connect, it does an amazing world of good. Um, so Gina, we're going to transition away from uh, a lot of the <laughs> emotional aspect that we've just dealt with, a lot of heavy yeah. issues. Uh, you also have a, a radio program, uh, which I've had the privilege of being on, Crosswalk, which um, I, if I remember correctly, it's sort of a, a bringing together of orthodoxy and orthopraxy. Yes. Uh, so put it, putting into practice uh, the, the doctrines that we hold firm to. If you're anything like me, I love doing this program because I get to talk to people like you and hear stories of of things like you just shared, which then serve me well and kind of go get locked away in my mind. And I'll recall that. In fact, if you're again, if you're anything like me, like 80 percent of my conversations, I tell people, oh, you've got to listen to this interview I've just done with someone. We'll be talking about a particular issue and I'll say, have you read or, 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 or listen to this? And I've been so well served by it. And I think you would benefit from it. You've, I'm sure, had a, a number of guests that you've just, uh, uh, you know, uh, discovered treasures and, and, and a wealth of uh, insight and grace from uh, any, any in particular at the top of uh, top of your list or well at the top of my list would be people like John Lennox and Oz Guinness and and Lee Strobel who've been on my program obviously these are men who have thought long and hard about biblical issues and and again applying them to the contemporary culture most of my life Jonathan has been spent answering people's Bible questions. And so I've had the great privilege of being on the radio answering people's Bible questions. I'm on the board of directors for gotquestions.org. You may be familiar with gotquestions.org. And I'm also the founder and president of Scripture Says, which is, again, the teaching, writing, preaching ministry. But but again, it's, it's taking the Scripture and then asking and answering questions. That doesn't mean I know the answer to every single question. And I certainly, in humility, even after all of these years, there are things that I absolutely don't know. But but my pastor told me something a long time ago, Jonathan. He said, don't give up what you know for what you don't know. In other yeah. words, what do we really know? And there's things that we really do know that sinners can be saved. You know, 
from the moment that I received Christ as my Savior as a young 16-year-old, and now I'm 65 years old, something's never changed. It was uh, amazing grace. John Newton. Newton, as he was getting older, like me, his mind began to fade a little bit. And he said, there are two things that I remember, that I am a great sinner, and Jesus is a great Savior. And so, yeah, on the radio program, what I'm trying to do is, is remember that the people who are asking me these questions, for many of them, they're asking it for the first time, even though I've answered sure. it a hundred times. That's right. That's right. And so it's to try and ask and, and be sensitive to people as they're asking their questions and then doing what Spurgeon said, cite the scripture and then make a beeline to the cross. Yeah, I love that. And I'm sure that's become a passion of yours because you know uh, again, through through the various ministries that you've served through, there's a lot of people who are hurting mm-hmm. who do not have access or don't know that they have access to good answers. Right. That's a big challenge. It is a big challenge. And that's part of what you know we want to do. And I know that's what you want to do. You're trying to connect people to the biblical answers, but all the while being sensitive to the fact that you don't want to come off as a know-it-all, that you go, right. oh, you know, been there, done that, read my book, blah, blah, I'm the blah. the guru. Yeah. Right. Or the, yeah, the sage on stage. But again, it's appreciating literally the ministries that have gone before us, the people who have fought for the, for, and, and conducted themselves with integrity in presenting the gospel. Yeah. You've interviewed, a, a, I'm sure, a, a, a slew of guests and, and answered a lot of questions. What do you find are the, the issues that the church is really either not answering or is not answering well or will be facing in the days to come or, or is facing now? What do you feel like are the big, you know, sort of uh, hot button issues, topics that, that are really spinning in people's minds? Five years ago or six years ago, I would have told you it's tongue tithing and baptism. But now it's sexual expression. In other words, I think that the big thing that is plaguing the church, if you will, is how do we respond to what the culture is saying about identity and sexual identity and sexual expression? It seems that we're living in a world that is becoming progressively more detached from what the Bible has to say about the most important issues. And so to me, this is the hot button. The hot button is, can I really believe what the Bible says about creation? Can I really believe what the Bible says about sin? Can I really believe what the Bible says about salvation? Can I really believe what the Bible says about the end of all things? And so and in the, the muck and the mire of all that, the most important thing is what 2005 people began to call therapeutic moral deism, where a growing group of people wonder, you know, is there a God? What kind of a God is God? And does this God want me to be happy? So believe it or not, I'm thinking that we are at the most primitive point of literally disconnecting the tether from the Judeo-Christian value. And we are really in a post-Christian Christian world. 
So all the more reason we have to do the things, the, the most basic things with, again, to speak the truth in love. That's the great challenge, Jonathan, that we face. That's the challenge your generation faces. How will I be able to tell people the truth in love? And I, I, and I mean love in the biblical sense of the word. <laughs> I don't right. mean in the smushy, gushy sense of the word. Yeah I, yeah, yeah, I don't mean sentiment, which is emotion without commitment. I mean love in the biblical sense, a willingness to do what's in the best interest of the person that you're dealing with. And it's in the best interest of the person you're dealing with to remind yourself constantly that they're made in the image of God, that the gospel is true, and that you need to find a way to speak to them that remains, I'm going to use the word, faithful to the revelation of God in Christ. That doesn't mean you treat people wickedly or inappropriately or, or absent compassion. Speaking the truth in love. A great challenge we all have uh, ahead of us. Well, uh, Gino, I do know you have three sons, correct? Yeah. Miguel, Anthony, Jonathan. And uh, is it Jonathan who has sort of stepped into yes. your uh, preaching shoes? Yes, he is the pastor of Calvary South Denver. Our church is uh, in the southern suburbs of Denver, just, a, you know, right around the corner from Columbine High School in Littleton, yeah, Colorado. Yeah, yeah. Well, and, and, and what's that like as a, as a dad to see your son be called into that same calling and then working it out? What are, what are the things you say to, to prepare him? Well, you know, one of the things that we did, obviously, as he was serving in the church as a young man, and then he grows up and goes to Bible college, he went to South Carolina and planted a church in, in uh, near Charleston in a, in a place called Mount Pleasant, which is just right across the, the bridge of the Ravenal Bridge. So he was a young man who literally did the work of the ministry and proved his ministry and came back and started serving in the church again. And it became clear that God was raising him up and calling him to be the pastor. When we were going through our own transition period, we began to pray and ask, Lord, how should we think about this? And we began to preach and teach through First and Second Timothy, which really the themes of those books are passing on a vision of ministry for a new generation. We always wanted the roots of our church and the branches wide. In other words, we wanted the roots deep, just like your church, your, your great church in Atlanta, Georgia, that, that God in his grace and his mercy has raised up through the ministry of your dad and, and your brother and, and a number of other leaders. It's, it's how can we have a lasting legacy of an impact in, in the community? And so, it, again, part of the, ch the challenge for me was to be able to pray and say, Lord, with this new chapter that he's going to enter into, what's the new chapter that you have for me? So that was the big issue. It was, can I find a way to express the gifts and callings that God has placed on my life and his life in this brand new chapter that we find ourselves in? And so, you know, I, I wish I could say, oh, and, and we had it all figured out. It's not true. Yeah. 
But again, we did think and pray and act intentionally in the transition. And your, your, your two other boys, are they involved with ministry? or? My oldest son, who I'm very, very proud of, is a major. He just uh, uh, became a major in the Army. He's, he was at Fort Leavenworth in the school, and he did two uh, Middle Eastern deployments. He's going to be the battalion commander at Fort Sill, Oklahoma. I'm very, very proud of him. My middle son, uh, pastor, church planter in New Hampshire, literally has uh, finished his role in planting the church in New Hampshire and is now uh, going to be heading to New Mexico to help support and encourage our churches in, in, in that part of New Mexico. So like John, I can say I have no greater joy than to say all my children are following Jesus in the faith. How wonderful. It's a blessing to hear that and, uh, and a great encouragement. Gino Geraci, it's been, uh, it's been such a great privilege and honor. Now, I do have one final question that we ask. Uh, we, we've started uh, uh, not too long ago, but that's asking, on your day and arrival into uh, the courts of heaven, what's your first question that you ask? Oh, man. I'm fairly certain that I'm going to be at a loss in, in the yeah. sense of I suspect that seeing Jesus is going to answer most every question I have. Yeah. But I'm, I'm sure that I'll have a couple. I, I, I'm pretty certain it won't be rooted in the, in the Calvinist-Arminian debate. Uh, <laughs> I think my, my singular emotion is going to be gratitude. This reminds me of the night I got saved. The night I got saved, the guy prayed with me to receive Christ. He opened up a Bible and he pointed to 1 John chapter 3, verses 1 through 3, where Jonathan, it says, Behold what manner of love the Father's bestowed upon us or lavished upon us that we should be called the children of God, and such we are. And it does not yet appear what we shall be. But we know this, that when he shall appear, we shall be like him for we mm. shall see him as he is. When I read that passage as a born-again person who just received Christ, it made an impression upon me, and I, I sensed that that verse would matter for the rest of my life and ministry. And so it is that anticipation. Yeah, I don't have a good answer for you other than I don't know. And that in itself is a great answer, I think. And, uh, and and it keeps it keeps that hope in front of us, right? That assurance of of yes. what we can look forward to. Well, Gino Geraci, it's been a privilege to have you on Candid Conversations. Thank you so much for taking the time to be with us. You're welcome, Jonathan. Thanks. Candid is a podcast from Leading the Way with Dr. Michael Youssef. Don't forget to connect with our social media pages on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. And subscribe to Candid Conversations on your favorite podcast platform so that you never miss an episode. While there, please leave a review. It helps people to find us. As always, thank you for listening to and sharing this episode.